Thank you, Stu, very, very much. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see everyone here. And for those of you who are joining us online, welcome. We're very glad that you're able to join us as well. Well, we, are, we have come to the end of the book of 1 John. And it uh, doesn't quite hardly seem possible that all of a sudden here we are. So as we take a look here at the last portion, I would invite you please to turn to 1 John chapter 5. And I will read beginning at verse 13 down through verse 21 as we come now to the end of this wonderful study that we've had together through this precious book. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me, please, for the reading of God's holy word. 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children... Keep yourselves from idols. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please do be seated. So just by way of a little bit of review, I won't go over everything that we talked about last time about prayer, but John begins this section saying uh, that he has some reasons that he's been writing. And we've noted that throughout this book, he has stated various and sundry reasons for writing, and that has provided much of the framework of our study in looking at the reasons that, that uh, John has to write, reasons such as his desire that they have full joy and freedom from sin and knowing Christ, integrity, a knowledge that is sure and certain uh, that leads to discernment, loving relationships with God, assurance by, of salvation, by a God whose testimony is stronger and greater than any. And last time we noted that John is wrapping all of those themes up here in this last section, which at first glance may seem to be somewhat random in composition, but is far from random as uh, we began to see last time, particularly noting the structure that is here uh, of the we knows. There are four things that John says that we know. Now remember, for those of you who've been here for a while, I hope you will remember, that one of the, one of the uh, occasions 
if not the main occasion for John's writing this letter to the believers uh, of his time, is that they were being ripped apart in the church by false teachers, particularly those of the Gnostic variety that claimed to have special knowledge of Jesus Christ uh, above uh, and beyond what the apostles had delivered. But it was a knowledge, quote-unquote, uh, that, was, that was heretical, that did not acknowledge either the divinity of Christ or the humanity of Christ. There were several uh, what we would look at as heresies or uh, foundations of cultic thinking that were going on there, and it was it was creating great division and hardship in the church. So throughout this whole letter, John has been emphasizing what we actually know, what we truly know. You might remember from uh, chapter 1 that he begins by saying, that, that which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have touched with our hands, We've examined this. This is what we're declaring to you. We really know this. And he's speaking in direct contradiction to those of a later generation who decided they had a better idea about who Jesus was than did the apostles who had actually lived with him, been taught by him, been ministered to by him. So uh, what this? when you begin to look at this last little section here, verse 13 is a, a statement that actually encompasses everything that's in chapters 4 and 5. It's kind of the, the heart of all of this. It, it has both a, a, a bit of a backward look uh, at, at what he has said in chapter 4 and uh, in the first half of 5 and what is to come. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And then the remaining portion, as he speaks of the things that we know, have to do with the blessings of eternal life that uh, he wants us to have confidence in, that we can truly be certain of. And the first one we looked at was uh, there in verses 14 through 17, which had to do with answered prayer, the conversation that we have with the Lord. Think of it uh, the comfort that there is in prayer now, in times of sorrow, in times of difficulty, and even in times of uh, when you don't think you might need comfort, in times of joy, uh, there's, a, there's a certain comfort and blessing to be able to share that joy with others. Yeah, I know when I travel sometimes and I'm traveling alone, um, I don't like traveling alone without my bride. Uh, for one particular reason, uh, if nothing else is that, you know, it's a great blessing to be able to drive around and see wonderful things and be encouraged by things and have someone you, uh, you love and you have this great relationship with and you can share that joy of things together in conversation. And that's, you know, we, we experience that on a human level, how much greater it is when we can come with our, both our needs but also our joys and our thanksgiving to our Lord and know that he's listening, know that he cares, know that he answers us. And we looked at the various aspects of prayer there and you can see I've, I've given you uh, the uh, completed outline there in the notes so I won't go over all of that again. But just that blessing of answered prayer, that conversation with the Lord, we will know for eternity 
without the, the hindrances of our flesh and our failing, uh, but now we see darkly, but then it'll be face to face. So our conversations with him will be full and incredible. And I can't wait. It's going to be uh, amazing and beyond our comprehension now. John goes on and speaks of some other blessings that are part of this eternal life that he wants us to be certain of and to rejoice in. And that is found in verse 18 in particular. Uh, Verse 18 reads, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. There's There's a lot packed into this one verse. One of the blessings that the Lord gives us now as a taste of what we will know in fullness in eternity is that you may know freedom from sin's dominion. You may know freedom from sin's dominion, sin's rule in your life. If uh, we uh, were speaking of prayer as conversation with the Lord, this verse is speaking of the blessing of consecration, being set apart unto the Lord in holiness. And what does this freedom look like? That we do not keep on sinning. Now, we've just been, we just started today in Sunday school in the adult class, a study that Elder Mike has appropriately termed, see, what's the title that you put? That you have heard it said that. This is one of those verses and verses like that in 1 John that people look at and go, oh, well, that must mean sinless perfection. But that's not what he's talking about. The the text, the the whole book has made it very clear that there are those that sin and and there are sins that do not lead to death. In other words, just because you sin, it's not an automatic fail. There is hope of, of redemption and there's hope of forgiveness in those sins. And it's in the same kind of vein here. Those that keep on sinning, the, the original language suggests that those who are not habitually bound into sin, who are not living under the dominion of sin and, and as those who have, as it were, no choice, they are just, they're slaves to it and they can do no other. No, those that have been born of God uh, do not live habitually in sin. Well, what, what does this freedom look like? Where does it begin? Well, it begins in your own heart. Take a look at Romans chapter 6, if you would, please. In Romans chapter 6, uh, beginning at verse 6, we read this. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you because you're not under law, you are under grace. Freedom begins with God's work in your own heart. John desires that we know eternal life, an eternal life that is free of guilt and shame and free from the bondage of sin that just seems to compel us, as Paul spoke of it in Romans chapter 7, the things that we know we should do, we don't do. And the things that we know we shouldn't do, those are the things that we do. We're like the, you know, bugs going to the electric bug killer light, you know. You know, and we just can't help ourselves. And, uh, and we go to our death, we go to our harm. Notice some things about your heart here in this passage. We won't go into this in great detail or we won't, we won't finish this morning. But note that the old heart is a slave. You are enslaved to sin. You are under the bondage of sin and death and the devil. But because in Christ Jesus your heart has been crucified to sin... That has freed that bondage. That's broken those bonds of sin because Christ conquered death when he died on the cross and then rose again. And in that resurrection, then your heart, has, if you are hidden in Jesus Christ, if that's what you're, you're trusting in, you have been set free under righteousness. Before, you could do nothing else but displease God. You had no ability whatsoever to please Him what in any way, shape, or form. But in Christ, now you actually, you actually do have freedom of the will in Him. In sin, you don't. You're, you have no freedom of the will. You're dead in your sins. But in Christ, you're made alive. And now you can live that way. And, and notice how this comes about. You know, sometimes we think, well, how does this freedom come about? You know, is this, you know, I struggle with sins. How do I, how do I break those patterns? How do I think differently? Well, it does start with thinking, according to uh, the apostle here. As he says in verse 11, think about this. It's so simple. And yet living it out is hard at times. But the concept is pretty simple. So also... You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Um, and the same kind of thought implied um, in, the, in the construction there in verse 13. Uh, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourself as those who have been brought. It speaks to your mindset as you take a look at sin. In other words, there's no place in the Christian's vocabulary for phrases like the devil made me do it or I couldn't help myself. You know, a lot of this starts with 
by God's grace, the way that you think about your relationship to the Lord. John, in his, God, in his uh, uh, epistle there, is saying, I want you to have eternal life. I want you to, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to have that confidence that it's yours. And confidence speaks to your attitude and your thought about it. If you go into the Christian life with this defeated attitude that, well, there's no way for me to break this cycle, well, it, it kind of tends to become a self-fulfilling prophecy because we use that as an excuse to give ourselves an out and go ahead and indulge in whatever it is instead of truly considering ourselves, where is our citizenship? What is the nature of our relationship to God? What is the freedom that he's given to us? And when we recognize that Christ has done these things, and by his grace, he's granted us repentance and faith so that we may believe in him, then you can live a life that is not condemned to constantly being on the, the treadmill of sin, that you just have no hope and, and no ability to do anything else but sin against him. No, the one who is in Christ is freed from that kind of sinning. That is, he does not keep on sinning. But this freedom isn't just about our own heart. And I'm so thankful that the verse doesn't stop there. Notice what it says here. But uh, he who was born of God protects him. So now here you've got to think about um, antecedents, grammatically speaking, as, uh, to these pronouns. Have we heard about um, somebody being born of God earlier in this passage? And if so, who was it? Thinking? Jeopardy music is now cueing. Who is, who is called the Son of God? The Lord Jesus Christ. And so, here we have, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God, that's the Son of God, whom John desires us to know. Go back to verse 12 of chapter 5, and there's your clear antecedent for that. The one who's been born of God protects him, protects the one who has been born of God as, as God's child. Who is it that protects our souls? He is the, uh, the Son of God, who in his various offices um, is is what are the three offices of the Son of the Lord Jesus? Prophet, priest, and king. Correct. So of those offices, how is Christ functioning in this verse? The one who is born of God protects him. That's the office, that's the function of a king. Here is Christ as our king who gives us, not only grants us the freedom in our own hearts because of the salvation that he gives to us, but he continues to protect us so that we are not um, drugged back into that um, slavery of sin. But he protects us. He gives us freedom from the adversary. And note that the adversary, the evil one, does not touch him. 
Think about that for a minute. If you are in Christ, the devil, the adversary, cannot touch you. He can do nothing apart from the ordination of God in your life. If the Lord wants to allow suffering and affliction at the devil's hand, like he did with Job, that's his business. But the devil had to ask permission. Had to come hat in hand, even uh, as arrogantly as he did that. He knew that he could do nothing apart from the sovereign decision of the Most High God. And Jesus is the one, the Son of God, one with him, as we talked about um, a couple weeks ago. He is God himself. And the devil can do nothing to you without his permission. He can't touch you. The Apostle James in James 4, verse 7, uh, encouraged us by these words, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, that's because you're resisting in the name of the king and he has no choice but to cease and desist and, uh, and leave you alone. We don't have the excuse to say, well, you know, I just can't seem to help it. No, consider yourselves as as a child of the king and live with that understanding that you've been born again. Live with that understanding, considering uh, yourselves to be delivered from him, uh, delivered from your sins. So you may know freedom from sin's dominion. This is about consecration, both in your own heart and through the external protection of our Savior from uh, the wicked one. And we, you know, we could also spend some time, and I won't here, uh, but the familiar passage, of course, in Ephesians chapter 6 regarding the armor of God and putting that on and withstanding the, the darts of the evil one. That plays into this as well. He's given us the tools as our king um, in faith and righteousness and God's word and the helmet of salvation. And the preparation of the gospel of peace, being ready uh, in Christ's peace to live as unto him and not uh, as unto the old life. So we can have freedom and be consecrated to him in this life. It can begin and it will be perfected in the day when we see him and we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. The third blessing that we'll take a look at is... um, in verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now here again, this is a pretty packed verse. Two, two thoughts here. First one, we know that we are from God. It speaks to our fellowship. This verse is speaking to our fellowship. Fellowship of God's people. This We've talked about conversation with God as a blessing. We've talked about consecration unto him that's a blessing. There's also the blessing of community together. A community that is beginning here in this life, in the visible church, as uh, those of like precious faith come together and worship and fellowship and rejoice and mutually aid one another and comfort one another when that's necessary. Rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. Sometimes it's a little bit, uh, it can be a little difficult to know who's really who, who's really of God or not. 
And this church, uh, the churches that John is writing to, uh, they've been ripped apart by those that claim to know Christ, claim to be of God, and yet were not. And so John's words here are significant. We know that we are from God based upon everything else that he has said regarding uh, the witness and, and, and the evidences and the tests and all those things that we've looked at in the course of this letter. John says, yeah, you can know, essentially. What's behind this is you can know who's of God and who is not. Fellowship in our identity, one with each other, uh, one with the other, is something that is rooted in this being from God. He is the one who is our source of power and life. If you look over at the little book of Jude, Verses 3 and 4, there's a contrast here, isn't there? Uh, In Jude 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you. um, Jude kind of takes a a page from John. Here's a reason to write. He says, My reason to write to you uh, was to appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is the common identity around a common faith. For certain people, he says in verse 4, have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our own Master um, uh, and Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a contrast. Jude is saying there are those that have snuck in They've claimed the identity, but what has called them out, what has revealed their true character is their response to God's law and their response to God's son. And that's essentially what John has been saying all along. You want to be uh, certain of your faith, certain of your walk with with the Lord. Don't listen to the false teachers who would deny Christ as he has been revealed in the word. And who would make excuse to say uh, anything goes as long as you feel good about it. Those that don't follow uh, this standard of faithfulness to the Son of God as he has revealed himself, and faithfulness to his word, reveal themselves uh, to be false members. But for those that are striving, however, yes, imperfectly, and we struggle so often, but where genuine faith is there, then that identity is a great blessing that encourages us when we come into worship together to be able to not only sing the same songs and pray together and that sort of thing, but as we fellowship together, encourage each other by what God has done in our hearts and lives and the blessings that he's given to us. And those things encourage us because we know that we're speaking to family and that we're, we find our comfort in our identity and that fellowship that is there in that community. And then also, I think here at the, the second part of this, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And it almost seems like a non sequitur kind of statement. We don't, all right, we know that we're from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It almost seems like those are a little bit disjointed, but they're not. And if you just... Even think about it for a second and go, okay, I, I see kind of what he's, what he's saying there, the contrast that is there. But it, not only are we are from God, we, we know 
the identity of those who are his. There's also fellowship um, in safety. In safety. Unlike the rest of the world, which is subject to the, the terrors, uh, though they don't often see those terrors and the miseries of sin, as the catechism puts it, but the, the terrors of the rule of the despot adversary. This, you know, the, the devil is a cruel taskmaster. However, uh, however uh, uh, prettily he paints the pig, it's still a pig. And sin cannot bring true joy. In fact, it only brings death. Notice this, this safety here, where the world lies in the power of the evil one, the, the, where the devil has the world in its grip, we are at peace because we are from God. Notice that this safety is, um, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, real quick. Ephesians chapter 2, first, uh, verses 1 through 7. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You were in the grip of the adversary, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Just a little longer uh, statement uh, than John's. Of course, it's Paul, so he tends to have longer statements. But uh, basically the same thought there. But, but this wonderful change here in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is this safety of ours based upon? The freedom from the grip of the adversary. It's based not in our works, not in our ability. It's based in God's mercy, in his grace, in his kindness. These are the things that the apostle is laying out for us here in the book of Ephesians. And it's all secured by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and no one else. So you may know blessed conversation, answered prayer, and communion with God. You may know being set apart in consecration unto him in holiness. You may know the blessings now and for eternity of, of a community that is bound together by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And then the final, uh, the final, um, I don't know what to call it, salvo, parting shot <laughs> in verses 20 and 21. As John brings his letter to a close, Perhaps the most blessed thing of all is confidence. Confidence. He, he, he started off this with confidence. I want you to be confident. There in, uh, in verse 14, remember that four, uh, where we looked at that word confidence, the boldness that uh, is, is ours. Would you have any boldness, any confidence 
in your faith if you wondered if it was true or not? It's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? You know, John knows that, and he looks at this uh, thought from this way. This is the fourth we know. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Unlike the Gnostic heretics who were questioning Christ's ultimate reality, particularly as he had been revealing himself and had taught about himself and as others of the apostles had taught about him, um, he's real. You may know the real God and have confidence in him because of that. And, and in this, uh, just here in these two verses, uh, there's a word that gets repeated three times. We, we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true. He is the true God. Just in case you missed it, he repeats it three times, which is classic Eastern uh, approach to emphasis that there is no doubt whatsoever that Jesus Christ is the one true and living God. And this true has to do with being real or genuine. His presence is real. He has come. His knowledge is real. What he has said is absolutely true. Oh, and there's another thought. Uh, The knowledge that he gives, this true knowledge on behalf, as he told the disciples Did he not? That uh, everything that the Father had given him to say to them, he had imparted to them. What office is he fulfilling as the Son of God there? As he's teaching and giving understanding. That would be the prophet. The prophet, the one who is teaching. He's imparting knowledge through the Spirit, which which, uh, John in his Gospel makes very clear in John 15, 26 where Jesus promises to send the Spirit to teach them and uh, enlighten them concerning everything that he had taught them. His presence is real. His knowledge is real. It's interesting that these grammatically has come and has given us understanding. They're joined by the Greek word for and there. And when two things of equal grammatical weight are joined by an and, it's called, uh, well, it's called the Granville Sharp Rule by the guys who figured that out. But basically it means that both of those things are equal. Um, And here we have that same construction. Both of these are in the perfect tense. In Greek, perfect tense means that something has happened in the past, but its effects are ongoing. It's not that he just came and then he died and it was over. It's not that he gave us understanding and he gave it to us then and now we're on our own. He is absolutely historically real. He's theologically real. He's spiritually real. The things that he has taught us are real and true. This is what John desires you and I to know. And in a very real way, his life is real. Not just his presence, not just his knowledge, but his life. And we are in him. We are in that life. The life that we have. The life that we live. We live uh, by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We are hidden in him if we are his. If his life is not real, we are hopeless. 
But praise God, it is real. And as John Stott, uh, uh, which I quoted last time, uh, said, sharing his very life is the idea here. Because we are in him, what office does that suggest of the Son of God? The priest, yeah. Only had one left, so you're pretty safe on that one. But yes, the priest is the intercessor and the mediator. He's our high, high priest. And if we are not represented in him and by him, we have no representation. But because we're in him, we share in his life and we share in the blessings of that life and we share in the end or the goal of that life, which is eternal life of communion, of conversation, of consecration, of community, all in him. And we can be confident in that. And I love the way that John wraps up the last sentence here, which almost seems like a, a just a tag on. Just so oh, let me let me let me throw this one in just in case you missed it. But as he's been talking about things that are true, 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 and what and this true and living God, it's not just an add-on. Basically, John is saying this final parting shot against the false teachers. <clears throat> he's basically saying to them, little children. Why would you want the fakes? Why would you want the imitations? Why would you want the false gods? Keep yourselves from the idols and be confident in the true and living God. You and I may truly know the blessings of eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ because of Christ. These blessings of conversation and consecration of community and confidence that only the genuine believer can know. You may know those because you're resting in a genuine Savior. This is why John has written the reasons to write. Do you share in those blessings now? If not, Cast away the fake Jesus of the world and embrace the real Son of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your mercies to us, which are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We ask, Lord God, that in your faithfulness you would be near to us and grant us, Lord, to to see these blessings and long after them and, and grasp them, considering ourselves as being knit together with you and then living accordingly in a way that is worthy of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one true Son of God who alone could represent us and take our punishment upon himself and give us peace. Thank you, Father, for your wonderful teaching to us by your spirit through this precious letter. Help us to live in confidence before you all our days.